Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, this is the Schwartz. You're listening to what is that show again? Wood Talk Online. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, my favorite friend, Mark, on Wood Talk Online. Welcome to Wood Talk Online, episode 36 for May 16th, 2008. I'm Mark Spagnolo, and I'm Matt Vanderlist. And as always, right at the beginning, let's get this out of the way. If you have questions. Some comments. You're going to hear something today that you want to send us some feedback. You know what? You can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can pick up your phone and leave us a voicemail message at 623-242-2450. Oh, my God. I think that's the first time I actually got through that number without messing it up. Wow. Good ins- job. <laughs> well, we're almost like becoming professional with this. This is crazy. <laughs> or oh, man. Far, far from it. Far from it. But uh... <laughs> that is like, if anybody saw these setups, they'd be like, what the hell? That's like one step up from like a toy. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm surprised we ever even get this show done, to tell you the truth. But anyway, uh, yeah. Well, actually, what's it been? A couple weeks since the last uh, episode. We always have the best intentions, but don't always seem to get around to, to doing it. But um, yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's been about two weeks since the the infamous live version, yes. which I want to know. I did not throw up for real. I I burped in my <laughs> mouth and it tasted like it. <laughs> it was a little was- uh, a little harsh, but uh, now the the live thing went great. I actually really enjoyed it, and I think we'll probably make that like a regular feature. I don't think it's something we want to do every single recording, uh, but I think it'll be a blast if we can actually do it once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of fun with it, and I even found out a couple of my coworkers actually watched it, oh. which made it even you know even more embarrassing the next day because usually I can embellish what happens during the stories. Yeah, but no, not that time. <laughs> yeah, the li- the live aspect is a lot of fun, and I think it changes our uh, the element a whole lot just because we know there's an immediate audience and there's no backup plan. You know, if we screw up, we screw up, and that's the way it is. So. Um, yeah, we'll do it again. We'll just have to get it onto, uh, some sort of schedule and, um, you know, maybe we'll do it every other show or something like that. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm sure everybody else would love it too. Sweet. Definitely. So the question is now, how many times did you save yourself from cutting your fingers off last week during safety week? 
Oh, um, let's see. There was the one incident on Monday. There was Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday. Well, they, they didn't get cut off, but I do have a couple of cuts. But they're more paper cuts than anything else because luckily I did actually check out a couple of the, the safety episodes. So, um, yeah, that went really, really well. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds like a lot of people really enjoyed this. I could not believe the turnout yeah. that you managed to get. It was in, You got two major magazines to join in on this. That is excellent, Mark. You've got to give yourself a hand for that one. I mean, that's I, really I – can, uh, I can sell ice to an Eskimo, Matt. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I mean, the thing was, I think this is something that was long overdue in terms of just, you know, stopping and saying, hey, let's talk about safety. Let's let's give this whole thing a, a, some purpose and some focus. And, I, you know, I don't think it was a matter of convincing. I think it was just a decent idea that came around at the right time. Uh, fortunately, I have um, developed a relationship with the magazines and the, the people uh, inside them are great. And uh, they're always willing to hear some ideas and, uh, you know, hopefully throwing their hat into the ring sort of legitimizes these things a little bit. And now I, could, I think we could all look forward to this to being a yearly event. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. That, that, that's excellent that it would be, would be coming back like this because, you know, we a lot of times, I, I know I am absolutely guilty of this, I get really lax in the workshop, even with everything that I, I put together, like with the, the lungs, ears, and eyes and stuff like that. Right. You know what? I just found myself the other day actually doing one of the things that I say we shouldn't do, which is I made that one cut without making any any attempt whatsoever at protection uh, on all three levels. So yeah, yeah. You know what, though? That is something that I'm uh, uh, guilty of, too. You you need to make that one little cut, and sometimes it's even when I'm I'm just cleaning up, so I'm cutting down a couple pieces of scrap so I could fit them in the garbage, and I go, you know, ah, I don't really need to put that on. But since we just had all this conversation and all these videos recently, it really makes you go, wait a minute, I would look like a real jackass if I got hurt and had to tell people it was because I was too lazy to put on my eye protection just to make that one cut, you know? Yep, absolutely. And I was hoping that that would be the ultimate result of all this. I mean, safety seems to make it into, okay, where is it? It's in the beginning of every video you see. You know, maybe it's at the end or, um, you know, maybe there's a disclaimer or fine print. But it's never really the premier sort of topic, uh, you know, focus. So I think it I think it was healthy for everybody just to sit back and, and really just focus on that one particular aspect of what we do that uh, can really make or break it for us. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, to be completely honest with it, I am still actually going through all the information that's out there. You know, I, I yeah. had planned on actually the weekend sitting down and reading some of the blogs, catching up on all the videos, and I couldn't. There's so much out there. So <laughs> it's, it was just it's really great that everybody jumped in there. And, yeah, the main thing to walk away with this is that we actually put at least maybe a tenth of it into practice. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope so. Uh, you know, the other thing is if anybody is looking to go back and, and relive the magic of Safety Week, um, we – organized it so that if you go to my website, you go to the blog page and change the category to safety, uh, all of the safety articles, and because I just recently started this category, uh, everything from Safety Week is under that category. So just go back and you could see all the posts, all the links to you know everybody else's posts in the, in the network and everything, and uh, all the videos from uh, Fine Woodworking that they supplied, everything will be there. Uh, so if you ever need to go back and have a concise list, it's right there for you. Excellent, excellent. Maybe I will actually do that because I know I was like I said I was going through mine. I'm like, where was that one article? There was who yeah. had that one? Uh, oh, oh, oh well. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, Matt, tell me, uh, tell me a little something about steam bending class. Well, actually, that is coming up at the end of the month. I'm really, really looking forward to that. On May 31st, I am going to be heading to uh, Jeff Miller's studio in Chicago, and he is actually doing a class on steam bending. I unfortunately as we're going to air i think the all the 
positions are filled up for the class unless somebody knocks me off and then takes my position. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it definitely looks like it's going to be a really fun class. I had talked to, uh, to Jeff about it because at one point there was like this toss-up between I might take steam bending or a basic finishing class. Hmm, which one sounds like they'd be more fun? <laughs> and it's like you got to take the steam bending, and then if you can talk your wife into the finishing one, that would be great too. And I'm like, all right. So I signed up for the, the steam bending. And it, it also sounds like it's a little bit of like bent lamination, you know, so it's not just the steam bending. If I remember right, I think it's also going to be bent laminations. Cool. Um, all that good stuff. So it's going to be really, really exciting to uh, uh, to take this and to check a whole bunch of this stuff out. And so I will definitely have to give everybody a full report on that one. Yeah, I was going to uh, say you better come back and just give us a little primer on on uh, what you guys did, what you learned, and all that stuff. No, actually, I'm going to charge everybody half of what it cost me to take the class. <laughs> fair <laughs> <Make> enough. <laughs> you got to recuperate your cost, Matt. I mean, it's, it's only fair. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I actually, um, I when I just about a week or so ago, I took uh, the finishing class. I was actually able to make it. And it was just your basic finishing course. We got to, of course, play with like, you know, um, like a, a Danish oil type of stuff and sure. wipe on finishes. And then we actually, the, we ended the class by playing with like um, dyes. And that was really kind of neat because I've seen them in catalogs. I've thought about playing with them or trying them out and stuff like that. And here was this opportunity to basically play with somebody else's scrap wood. Right. And. I, I, he did catch me as I was trying to like sneak some of like the big pieces that were unfu- uh, you know unfinished into my bag and get him out there. I mean, he had some beautiful like mahogany and stuff like that. I'm like, you know, Jeff, what are you doing with this like six by uh, four quarter by? <laughs> <laughs> so so he stopped me on that one. But um, it, it was it was a really neat class and it was kind of fun just to play around with those. And so that that really kind of got the ball rolling. Oh, well, you know but what they more- say: uh, dye is the new stain. I, I, you know what? He did say that. Did he really? That's amazing. Oh, I'm just kidding. Okay. I thought I was onto something. All right, never mind. We can probably put that on t-shirts. Dye is the new stain. I actually, I mean, I, I hardly ever use standard uh, Kansas stain anymore. I'm I'm on the uh, water-based, uh, you know, an alcohol-based dye train uh, chugging along. I like it. You know, I was just thinking today, I was like, my wife was actually making like some frosting last night for some cupcakes that were supposed to go to work, but they never made it out the door this morning. <laughs> and she was playing with food coloring. And I was looking at that. I'm like, you know, there's that part of me that's so cheap that I'm like, I wonder if I could actually use that. You know, yeah, just you can. To, I mean, you can to an extent. I don't know how much, you know, how much color transfer you're going to get. But, you know, if you, a lot of times if you're doing like kids toys and stuff, you could use some food coloring. But the question is, is it going to come right back off? <laughs> you know? that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, well, let's see here. How would I? Eh, maybe I'll just stick to the stuff that you know is actually in the stores that's made for this actual type of project. Well, it might be fun. So. Speaking of kids' toys, you make a set of blocks or something for uh, for a friend's kids, you know, and just put use uh, food coloring on them, and you know, a week later their kids are gonna have like green stained lips and everything. <laughs> It'll be great. It's a nice little practical joke. That's a, that does <laughs> you know what I know just the person for it too maybe I'll actually do that <laughs> but you know the the one thing that was really neat in the finishing class was um uh, Jeff was actually saying that he has a lot of clients that likes him likes him <laughs> that like him to use that's good um, to know <laughs> yes it, it's really good and he uh, uh, likes to use a lot of mahogany and he was saying that one of the problems is people like associate like this really artificial purple hue to the mahogany and so he actually has to use the dyes to make it more of what the customer's expecting versus what the mahogany actually looks like. Right. And so he's kind of demonstrating on there, and I'm like, really? Man, once again, that goes into how can I get this poplar to look like mahogany? Right. (laughs) You know what? Cherry is kind of like that, too, if you think about it. Uh, The average person, I think, that 
uh, doesn't necessarily know any better thinks of cherry and what do they think of that uh real dark you know dark red uh maroon colored uh right. cherry you know and that's that's not cherry at all i mean after it ages it gets a little closer to that but uh you know not that like norm new yankee workshop cherry color right yeah exactly <laughs> which it <laughs> well, seems know, like favorite... every project is done with that color <laughs> from the new yankee <laughs> workshop i think it is the most popular color at minwax right now so <laughs> i'd imagine that might have something to do with it <laughs> you know so one thing i have to mention about chicago was right near jeff miller's uh, studio my favorite restaurant i haven't eaten there yet just because i can't get past the name but it's big buns and pita and i'm like i've got i've got to stop there nice. i've just got to stop there time and check that out because it's such an appropriate name. It so definitely sounds is, like a great place to spend an evening. It does. Yeah. Honey, come on. <laughs> we're going out to Big Buns and Pita. What'd you say to me? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my favorite restaurant in uh, Chicago, uh, because I've been there, uh, wow, all of one time. And uh, <laughs> I think it, uh, what's it called? The Rosebud, right? The Italian place? You know, uh, what, you know what I'm talking about? I think it's called Rosebud. I don't know. There, 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 there's a couple of them. Stretch, yeah. There's, there's like a, in one stretch, I think there was easily... Ten restaurants, like in, in a one block area. Apparently, Chicago's Chicagoans like to actually eat. They so, do. I yeah, don't know. some good food there, no doubt about it. Yeah. boy, are we off topic? Right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get back onto something. Hey, have we heard anything else about the Woodworking in America conference? Uh, I, I know that they recently announced that um, these two excellent journalists are going to be appearing there. Hmm. <laughs> Who might they be? Um, other than people showing up, uh, that's the only update that I've heard. A few more names that were added to the list. And then, uh, of course, a few, uh, podcasters were added to the list. Not therefore that they're there as press, not there as, uh, as woodworking resources necessarily. Um, right. but I mean, man, what, what an amazing list of people there. And, and for someone who comes from more of a, a power tool background, but has played in the world of, of hand tools in a sense, I know who these people are and this is, this is going to be a, a hell of an event. I mean, this is going to be awesome. Yep. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really looking for it. It's like one of those, as soon as I saw the list of people, you know, I, my mouth just started salivating. It, it was, I it, went, I went blank. Yeah. It's, it's sick. a, it's a who's who, you know, it's, it's really cool. So very exciting. If you, uh, if you're looking for information on that, what's the website? Is it woodworking that is the one, yep. And remember, it's November 14th through the 16th in Berea, Kentucky. So if you have a chance to make it and you're interested at all in hand tools, you know, definitely check it out. They said there's going to be like something like 40 different classes. And then on top of it, there's going to be like a whole market outside. Yeah. And then there's going to be the two podcasters. Well, three, because Neil's going to be there. And just, you know, who doesn't want to get our autograph? <laughs> right. And, that, well, the other thing, too, is there's a limited number of people that are going to be able to attend. So make sure you... uh Get over to the website, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll be the, one of the first people to know when the tickets are for sale and any yep. updates on the show. So that's something you want to jump on very quickly because I don't think it's going to take long to sell this thing out. So, Nope, absolutely. Well, Sweet. what do you say, dude? We can move uh, to some voicemails unless you had something else to throw in there. Uh, no, I am all tangenty out right now. So let's move some voicemails where I can get some new topics for tangentiness. <laughs> all right, here we go. We've got a question from Dennis concerning uh, one of my not so favorite woods to work with, hickory. Uh, hey, Matt and Mark. This is Dennis Resendez, the teenage woodworker. I just had a quick question about the um, hickory for the frame I'm making. Um, the people want me to make it to match their cabinets. With their kitchen cabinets, which are also hickory, and um, they've had it in there for about five years. So I was just wondering if 
um, the color change would be great from just the regularly finished hickory as opposed to the um, ones that have been there for about five years. And also um, in the corner where the tongue groove is, there is a little peg, and I'm gonna. It's a dark wood, so I'm probably gonna use ebony for that. And uh, so I was wondering if there's any color changes, if I was going to leave the hickory out in the sun to change the color um, to match the cabinets more, would that affect the ebony at all? So um hope you can answer my question, and um, have a good day. Dennis is the man. That's the teenage woodworker. I thought I heard a squeakiness in that voice. <laughs> he definitely is a teenager. Now, he's, he's, he's a good guy. Anybody who hasn't seen his... Uh, his videos, he does uh, some great videos. I think he puts them out on Lumberjocks primarily, right? They're- right, yeah. yeah. I, I have to applaud him. I, if, if I was his age again, there's no way in the world I would be doing this. I would too be, be too busy probably, like, you know, getting in trouble. Yeah, so. yeah. And the good thing is he's, he's involved, you know? I mean, he's out there. at the He's in our chat night all the time and everything. He's, he's a good dude. Yep, um, all right. Well, anyway, he did have a question. Um, okay, that's right. Yeah. Hickory? <laughs> yeah, something with hickory and ebony. Now, the ebony, I don't really think is, you know, I haven't worked with ebony a whole lot, but I don't think you have to worry too much about it going through a, a drastic or noticeable color change with a little, you know, a short-term UV exposure. Uh, the hickory, now, I've got hickory cabinets in, in my house. Um, we have some newly installed hickory cabinets in uh, my parents' house. Now, the thing with hickory, it can really, even more so than the color change over time, which I don't think is really that dramatic, it may darken a little bit. It may get a little more yellow over time. But what's really uh, crazy about hickory is the streaking. So sometimes you can get a bunch of boards that are a really nice caramely kind of brown color, and then they have a white streak going through them. Or the opposite you know, scheme, where it's a lot lighter with these really darker streaks going through it. So depending on the cuts, sometimes a whole cabinet set will look completely different than another cabinet set because it depends on the boards that they were made with. So what I think is, you know, should be the primary focus for Dennis here is to get a set of boards that closely match the existing ones. Now, if the color is even slightly off, time will fix that. That's really not a major issue. Um, really just getting the, the, the grain pattern matched up uh, and looking like it was cut from the same set of boards is really the key. And uh, as far as color, I don't, you know, it might have a little bit of a fresher look to it, maybe a little more blonde uh, than the ones that are already up there, but I don't really think you should anticipate too big of a color difference. And if you're concerned about it, put some uh, finish on a board, take it over there and look at them side by side and see if it's a uh, if it's enough to worry about and to supplement with some sort of a dye. Right. Yeah. I'm not I, I'm not I, sure I, that I would bother, but you know, depends right. on well, depends on how picky they are. Right. No, I I, I think you're right on there. I I really don't have much experience with hickory, but I think with a a lot of other woods, you're you're right. Time's the great equalizer. So I think just give even if it's off just a little bit, give yeah. it some time, and, and sometimes it will that's the and that's that's sometimes the better solution so you don't you know if you if you try and match it with dye it's okay but then what happens when the real color starts coming in and you've got that dye or pigment on top of it is it then gonna the end result gonna be different you know than it would have been if you just left it alone um you know in due time everything will even out but i really don't anticipate it being all that different to begin with given the range of color that's already uh in hickory from the beginning so Sweet. All right. Uh, we've got another one here, and this one's a little more uh, in your territory there, 
Mr. Vanderlist. Um, this is from Craig, and he has a question concerning uh, doing some uh, uh, planing or jointing with uh, a hand plane and whether or not that's going to be an issue with glue. Oh, interesting. Hi, Mark and Matt. This is uh, Craig in Springfield, Ohio. I had a question for you regarding uh, my joiner and a hand plane with a uh, fence on it. Um, I was wondering if my, my joiner, it's real hard to get it 100% accurate as far as the, uh, the edge, 90 degrees to the face. It's kind of a, a cheap joiner, and it's, it's real hard to get it exactly perfect. And when I do glue up, sometimes I have to rotate, you know, the boards, the faces of the boards, because the joints are completely tight. And uh, sometimes I, you know, I don't want to do that. Now I, I was just curious. In the fact, I like to use I like to use my hand tools whenever I can. And I was wondering if I could, you know, run them through the joiner to get them closed, and then finish them off with, um, you know, my Lee Valley, uh, like a number four plane with a, a fence on it. Uh, my concern was I, I thought I heard somewhere that sometimes if you use a, a plane. Uh, a hand plane do edges like that. It actually makes the edges so uh, uh, smooth that the glue doesn't take as well, possibly. And I, I wondered if, if that was true, or uh, if, if, if especially Matt had any experience using hand tools on glue up, and uh, if that was the case. And then I had a second question uh, for for Mark. I noticed on that new uh, Festool uh, multifunction table, they changed the uh, side. Uh, the side panels, the, the, it used to be like an E-track type thing, and it's now gone to like a V-track. Does that mean you can no longer use the clamps to clamp things to the side of the table? Uh, just curious about that. Uh, thanks. Keep up the great work. Love the show. Bye, guys. All right. Um, you want to handle the, the jointing question first, Matt? Yeah, sure. It's seeing as Craig's a double dipper there, buddy. Hey, getting those two questions. <laughs> two for one. Uh, two for one or there. But you know what? That you know, Craig. Actually, my uh, the the one thing that you're describing there with your your joiner maybe not being off a little bit, and then want to kind of come back and hit it with your hand planes. You really won't run into any problem whatsoever gluing up these boards. And really, if you think about it, just look at any any historical antique piece that's out there. I mean, any of them that have been made by actual hand tools. The, the boards are still together. The panels are, are held together perfectly fine. I, I think the one thing that maybe kind of like a, an old wives' tale kind of a thing is what maybe what brought this whole notion on wherever you heard this, you know, that a, a hand-planed edge, the glue won't take as well, is because it, it gives such a smooth surface that I think some people are thinking like somehow like the, the pores get closed or it um, polishes the surface. Almost burnished or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and if that was the situation, then right, the, the glue may not be able to actually kind of get in the pores and, and set up the right way. It, it would actually kind of, you know, block the, the glue from setting up the right way. But really, when it comes down to it, really what the hand plane is doing is it's it's shearing the, uh, the fibers, the wood fiber, and it's actually kind of opening it up just a little bit more. And with it being a uh, a, a more level surface, you actually will get a little bit better glue adhesion. I'm not going to say it's going to be absolutely better than just you know just simply hitting it with your joiner or whatever. It's going to be a little bit smoother. And if you want, if you were one of those people like you're breaking out your you know your your uh, microscope and looking at that actual joint, the hand plane joint is going to be much tighter than just one that you hit with your joiner. But really, the, that whole fear of it not going to come together with the glue is it's it's unfounded you know really if, if you're concerned about like if you were to 
hit 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 it with like let's say um, like six hundred grit sandpaper. In that case, you're actually going to have like a burnishing effect. You're actually going to polish it, and what would happen is like the the sawdust could actually get into the pores and block the glue from really being able to set up and everything. That's when you're concerned about it. But I'm never going to have to be there because I'm just too damn lazy to get that high of my sandpaper. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's never going to actually happen because it even happens with a finish. I've I've heard before like one of those you know when. They always, you know, finishers are always saying never go above 220 when you go to apply a finish, you know, the initial finish because you go up any higher. And um, I've never had, actually had this experience also, again, because I've never gone up higher. But I've heard, like, the higher up in grit you go, the less the finish will actually take into the, into the wood. It'll, take, like, it'll appear lighter. Right, and again, right. this has to, like, a polishing effect on it. So, yeah, that, that definitely worked. Wouldn't, wouldn't really happen. And the, the one thing, kind of a, a tangent with that whole idea of using like, your hand plane, uh, you can actually get an effect with your boards called a sprung joint if you just simply kind of hollow out the center just a little bit more, just you know, uh, one or two passes right in the very center, like say in from the leading edge, go about one inch, then start once you've got everything squared up. And what happens is you'll notice when you bring the two boards together, there's just a slight little hollow right in the center, but the main thing is the ends of the boards are super tight. So then when you take your clamp, you put a little clamping pressure there in the center, um, it will actually keep the ends from popping open, which is kind of a, a neat trick. And it's something that, you know, uh, hand tool users have been doing for years. And again, it's called the sprung joint. You can do a Google search or whatever. See, you know, there's tons and tons of examples of it. But it's kind of a, a neat trick that you can do with your uh, hand planes. Cool. That sounds good. Hey, you know, he was talking about having the uh, the jointer just not being tuned right or he can never get it at a perfect 90 degree angle. So he has to do that sort of. Uh, alternating board trick where you assume that if it's off by a certain amount consistently, if you run the next board backwards or the, in the other orientation, when you put them together, uh, they should meet perfectly when you actually glue them up because each angle is, uh, you know, sort of, um, matching the other. Can't you do that with the, uh, with the hand plane as well? Just, uh, butt the two boards up against each other and plane them at the same time and then you sort of just fold them into each other, and the joint should be dead on accurate. Yeah, I, absolutely. That, that, that's a yeah, that's a great point. I'm sorry. Uh, um, yeah, I've, I've done it, and uh, it's actually I always refer to it. I always, I thought it was just something I did because I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. It, it's very possible, but I, I think I remember reading it someplace. But yeah, you you get really excellent results from that because just like you described, how compensating for it um, with the, with the regular power jointer. If you were to take your panel and have it set up, okay, so I know that these two surfaces are my top faces, these are the bottom, and basically just kind of sandwich it so like bottom is facing bottom or top is facing top. If you were to run your plane along that joint, even if you didn't have it square, if it was off, you know, whatever it is, you're actually making complementary edges. So when you open it back up, regardless of how off you are, they will actually complement each other. I mean, obviously, if you're way off, then... They're not going to do it, uh, come together the right way. But essentially, you get you can actually get that result. And the main thing is, if you were to do this and you were to run your hand plane down that uh, entire edge, make sure the shaving is actually from both edges. Right. And then that way, guaranteed that you're going to get it. Because I have done that in the past where I went right down and I only really kind of got one side. When I would look back at the shaving, the shaving is like half the, the thickness kind of a thing. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that'll do it. <laughs> Put it together the hell is this gap <laughs> right right well that happens cool i was just curious i thought i saw that in a magazine once i've never done it but good to know um, yep. now we have a little feature here today uh concerning bench vices and this is not a oh, wait, 
get there. We had the uh, he had the second question. Remember, Craig was a double dipper. Dang! Thanks for keeping me on task, homie. Problem. I was avoiding that. I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, what was his question? It was about the MFT and clamps. Um, the new MFT three uh, Festival's new multifunction table is um, it is different. There are certain things that are not going to fit because of the V track. Uh, on the top, the new way of attaching accessories to the table. What they still maintain, though, are the T-tracks on the front, and there's a little one in the back, and it's still, for the standard clamps that he's probably talking about uh, to clamp things to the side, you can still get away with using, um, you can definitely get away with using those. Uh, they should fit just fine. Certain things like the extension bed that hangs off to the side to kind of give you a more working surface, um, that I'm actually currently working on a very simple modification to make it fit. Um, and a few other things aren't going to fit, but the clamps should all be fine. Sweet. Okay. Good, Good to know. All right. Um, you know, it's interesting too. That was a very, you know, hand tool focused question. And then also a question about a festival multifunction table, which is kind of a, I think that's cool. I think it's cool because it's obviously if you have a multifunction table, you're definitely using a lot of power tools. Uh, but then again, we've got some the same person who's uh, using a, a jointer plane to uh, mill up his boards and get them ready for glue up. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. He's a spectrum person. I like to call him more spectrums. We're at both ends. He's a, he's a hybrid. Um, yes, there you go. <laughs> all right. So we, <laughs> right, yeah. So we had a, like I said, we had a little feature that we wanted to do talking about vices. Uh, not, um, you know, Matt's need for, uh, you know, to buy hand planes and, and my need to uh, to bother my wife. Um, you know, regular woodworking vices we're talking about right. here, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. Not the ones that are going to get you busted and put in jail for eight months. No, like <laughs> yeah. So um, the email that we got that actually spurred this on was from Hutch, right? Um, yep. He said, I was wondering if you can give us some information on bench vices, the types of bench vices and typical uses of those, uh, which vices are practical for hand tool enthusiasts and power tool users as well. I've been thinking about building uh, a bench since Mark was waxing poetic over the workbenches book by Chris Schwartz, uh, but I'm not sure when reading the book or building the bench will happen. What alternatives are there? Simple tips, tricks for practical everyday situations. Uh, thank you both, Hutch. So we figured, why not talk a little bit more extensively about it than just answering his email uh, and, and uh, do a little feature on it. So this is pretty much our little mini review of uh, just some basic vice uh, conversation, and we'll we'll just uh, see where it rolls from uh, from there. Uh, we're using as a resource here for your reference, um, we have two articles that we're uh, pretty much reading through here and there. Uh, Making Sense of Vices by Garrett Hack. It's a fine woodworking article, uh, May, June 2007. And also The Workbench by Graham Blackburn. And that's, uh, what is it, The Tools and Shop Issues by Fine Woodworking, 2002. Yep, yep that's the one, yep. Okay, and of course, also, uh, we don't go into too much detail, but part of uh, the conversation and, and knowledge bank that we're working from comes from uh, Chris's book, uh, The Workbench, or what is it? What's the official name of that book? The official name is, I've got it right here because I take it with me everywhere I go. <laughs> you it's have the pocket reference kind? <laughs> oh, no, I just have a very big pocket for the full-size one. <laughs> it's the uh, Workbenches from Design and Theory to Construction and Use by Christopher Schwartz. There you go. Uh, a bed, a bedtime story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For for my wife, she snoozes out after I get one <laughs> paragraph. <laughs> so you know, the, the one thing we found when we were actually going through like all of this information is that really, there's when it comes down to it, there's like 
two types of uh, bench vices when, when, it, when we really kind of, you know, you, you, you put them all together. There could be hybrids all over the place on this. Sure. But the, the two most common uh, vices that we have for woodworking benches are, one, the front vice, and two, the end vice. And the, the thing is, when it comes down to it, really – the front vise is nothing more than basically a set of jaws that clamps the workpiece to the front edge of a workbench. And those jaws basically can be like, I don't know, cast iron or they can be wood. And, you know, you, you can do all sorts of different things with, with the cast iron to kind of help you out. Cause I mean, obviously it's, it's metal. It could potentially mar or something. So you, you can like put a, you know, a wooden surface in there like to line it. Um, basically though, I think most of us are probably familiar with the cast iron jawed ones. Usually they consist of like a large single screw right in the center and a couple of steel like guiding rods. And, uh, most of the ones I, I know on the market right now have that like quick, uh, release lever, which, uh, well, not really a quick release lever. It's a quick release feature. And basically more or less when you need to get it open real quick, because who knows, maybe you're working with a hot piece that you're taking right out of the steam bending, you know, uh, container, <laughs> you got to rip that baby right open, pop it open and put it in. Then you can turn it real quickly, get it open and close as you need. Now, the other version is the wooden jawed voices. And basically they're very simple. They, they can be shop made. They can, you know. Somebody else can make them for you, basically. And just like a, a cast iron vice, they have a screw and maybe a couple of guiding rods to open and close them. Um, and, and actually with a, uh, uh, the wooden ones, with, the, with the, the wooden jawed ones, there's another version of the wooden jawed vice, which is referred to as the arm vice. And basically the arm vice consists of a single screw and it has a, like a much wider opening. Now, one problem with an arm vice is that while it can accommodate like wider boards, according to the authors, uh, they don't really have as much clamping pressure as what they're claiming. And with that arm vice, it kind of looks like you have an arm extending off the front of your bench, and then it just more or less kind of pushes uh, like the the clamp up against the the front of the of the bench. It's like off at one end, basically. It's kind of a unique. It really does look like an arm. The more I look at the picture, it's, it's one with it where it's sort of suspended almost, and the the little face of the clamp just kind of hangs there. And pushes toward yes. the... Okay, I know what you're talking yep, about. Yeah, yeah yep. those are pretty cool. I mean, the, you mentioned the quick release. That's something that I don't have anymore, but I used to have on, on my first bench because when I made my first bench, I grabbed what looked like what I needed. It was a vice. I bought it from uh, Rockler and uh, just attached it with some bolts to my bench, and it worked great. Uh, but it came with a quick release uh, lever on it, and man, that's awesome to have. Uh, and now I don't have that anymore. And there's times when I really, I need to move the vice, you know, six to eight inches. And it's going to take me a few minutes to get all those threads to, <laughs> to go through <laughs> yeah. and actually get where I need to be. So th that's a great yeah, feature. Spinning like crazy, literally spinning your wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, well, now let's uh, talk a little bit about the end vice. Uh, of course, that's attached to the end of the workbench. Uh, it's most often used to... Not so much uh, keep your, your work against the bench vertically, but think about your work horizontally. Let's say you want to sand the face or plane the face of a board. So it's really used to pinch the workpiece flat to the workbench surface. Uh, the vise itself is usually, it's got, it depends on the vise, but it's going to have some sort of a peg or a, uh, a support in it. And a lot of times they pop up and down so that you don't always want it sticking up out of the bench because you can, you know, that can actually cause some problems. Uh, so those are typically referred to as dogs, okay, bench dogs. I'm sure you've heard that term before. Uh, and it squeezes the workpiece up against another dog that's further down the bench. Uh, and basically like the front vise, uh, they're either made out of cast iron or they're made out of wood. Uh, but they're commonly either in one corner of the workbench or they're full width. And you'll see a lot lately, I think, in popularity of full width um, uh, vices are, are pretty popular. I have one myself. 
Now, end vices uh, can be the same model as the type that you find in the front of the bench. You just put them on the, the end of the bench, and now it's an end vice. Um, with the exception of one, though, the tail vice. Tail vices are usually uh, the movable portion of the bench, so it almost looks like the bench itself is moving as part of this clamping system and wraps around the front in sort of like a, a L shape. Uh, but other than that, the function is pretty much the same uh, as, as the front. Now, um, full-width vices, like we were just talking about, are actually ideal for holding wide panels on the workbench because you have such a wide span, and you could have a bench dog on each side, and you've got a, a good amount of coverage that way. Uh, unlike the smaller end vices, these can pinch wider workpieces uh, in two locations rather than one. Uh, the full-width vices can have one screw and a couple of guiding rides, or they can be uh, like the twin screw model, like the Veritas, uh, which has yep. two screws that are connected by a chain. And uh, what winds up happening is as you turn one of the, uh, the screws, the other one turns with it. And that can actually help to decrease any racking that you might have by having such a wide clamping surface. The, the first thing that I always think about is the placement of the actual vice, because this is one of those common things that, it, it, unfortunately, maybe the first time you set it up, you might not think about it until after you got it completely set up, and then it's like, damn it, this isn't working for me. So when it comes down to actually placing the vice, my suggestion is when it comes to the front vices, most commonly, if you're left-handed like I am, you're actually going to set the, the, uh, the vice at the opposite end of the workbench, so you want it on the right-hand side. Now, if you're right-handed then it's going to go on the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. And basically, this has everything to do with when you're going to actually do like hand planing or any work with basically any kind of hand tools. Obviously, your left hand is going to be the power hand, so therefore you are going to be facing in that direction. Right. Now, the other thing is when it comes to end vices, we want to properly place those. They always, well, they don't always, the majority of the time, if you want to use them the correct way, they usually go at the opposite end from the front vice. So for left-handed people, front vice on the right-hand side, and vice traditionally goes down on the left-hand side, uh, vice versa for you right-handed people. Now, one common problem that we usually have with vices is that we have to worry about racking. Racking is just like, it, it, it racks your brain is what it comes down to. It's insane. <laughs> How bad these things can rack. So one thing, uh, uh, just a real simple thing to do is when it comes to clamping a piece in a vise, I usually insert like a scrap of equal thickness into the jaws. Now, I don't always have to do this, but I found for the majority of the time if I am, say, just need one half of the face vise to actually hold a piece tight against the workbench because, say, I'm going to plane it or something, the other half of the vise I'll put in, let's say if I'm working with four-quarter, I've got it down to three quarters of an inch. I'll put a three quarter inch piece of scrap in there and that will actually hold it uh, so that it won't rack. You'll get the, the full on uh, clamping pressure. And this is even true with the end vise. Now, the one nice thing is with like that twin screw that you described, usually that one will really not have a problem with uh, the racking. But if right. for some reason you do find that it is causing a racking problem, this is a great way to actually get over that issue and uh, really kind of uh, hold it in place. Now, um, one thing that when it, when it comes to actually clamping long pieces like in a front vise, um, the vise by itself isn't going to hold that complete board up. So you got a, a six-foot-long board. Uh, I got news for you that little, like, let's say six inches of uh, the, the face of the vise is not going to hold that six-foot-long board up. So you can probably <laughs> use, like, a, a, a clamp at the other end, something to help support it. And this is where you can get into, like, all sorts of, like, you know, dead men and stuff like that, sliding dead men, hanging dead men, dead men just all over the place. <laughs> dead guys are everywhere. It's crazy. <laughs> 
That's right. So, so that's you know really the kind of when it comes down to it, that's you you can build it like a, you can put it in a, like a series of peg holes or you know dog holes or whatever in the front of the bench someplace, and essentially this will help you to put in like a bar clamp or put in a dog or something to really kind of help hold stuff up. That's that's the best advice I can get. You know that this is definitely someplace where I think maybe we can get some feedback if other people have ideas. Sure, so. definitely. And there's a lot of good examples of that with the sliding deadman and stuff like that on uh, in Chris's book. I saw some really good examples of that. Um, now, a few other things that you can do, uh, for instance, lining the vise to protect your work pieces. Now, obviously, like Matt said, uh, if your vise is made out of cast iron, uh, that's that's bad news for wood, obviously. Uh, so you either want to line the inside of your vices with wood. You could line them with cork. Uh, you could buy those little strips of cork uh, that work really well. Just attach it with some, you know, what is that spray adhesive stuff that you get in a can that you could just kind of scrape it off later. Uh, you yep. could you could even line it with leather. That's kind of the traditional material to use. Uh, and also, you can use something like carpeting. If you have any scrap pieces of carpet, that's great for holding work pieces without actually doing any damage to them. Um, the other thing that always comes up as an issue, like any, you know, even power tools and stuff, when you have big threads, you need to keep them lubricated. They're going to get, you know, gooped up with sawdust. Uh, if you use a wet lubricant in there, that kind of, it's great for like the first day, and then it seems to just over time get worse and worse and worse until finally you're left with this just mess that's, you know, clumped in there and you have to clean it all out. So I actually prefer to either use a wax that dries or a some sort of spray can dry lubricant on those threads, and that usually keeps them nice and smooth, and dust just kind of hits it and falls off. It doesn't uh, accumulate. Nice, nice. That's a great point. Thank Sweet. you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. I knew you would have some good ones on that. You're a- <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, one thing is uh, Hutch was really kind of uh, trying to get as much advice on voices as possible. And I can't believe I got through that. But anyways, <laughs> the one more thing we need to talk about when it comes to voices is that there are actually specialized voices that you can get. And most of the time, these are ones that usually kind of like sit up on top of the actual workbench. Mm-hmm. And this is probably something that maybe more for like power tool users, although I can easily see how I can incorporate these with hand tools. But essentially, you have like swivel voices, pattern maker voices, machinist voice, miter voice, twin screw voice. Well, actually, those are the ones that would kind of be on the end. We talked about those. Right. Uh, like big leg voice, shaker st- on shaker style benches, all that kind of stuff. I mean, really, you name the task, there's probably a voice out there for it. I mean, you could even incorporate like a drill press voice if you really wanted to. Sure. On the top of your workbench. So that would, you know, really when it comes down to it, you'll see like tons and tons of voices out there. I mean, machinist voices. And really, for for all sorts of woodworking, these things would work perfectly fine. You just have to kind of think about what application you want to use this for. Because a lot of times, like with the machinist voice, man, if I had that up on my workbench, I actually did kind of start out with one like that. And let me tell you, when you try to hand plane something on that, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not good for for all applications, that's for sure. Um, right. Now, this, this will be an interesting question. I don't think there is a definite, um, you know, clear answer for this. But if someone was, you know, sort of indicated that they want to go the power tool route for the most part. Um, do do we have a recommendation for what complement of vices we would recommend for them? I mean, what, um, would, what would you think? Well, I, I, I really, I think really when it comes down to it, maybe for sure, you know, how we, we described like the cast iron one with the, the quick lever release kind of a thing on it. Yeah. I think that is a very safe, general purpose vice that you know that's one of those that you don't even have to have it set up on on the front of your your workbench you could have it on the end like we described how you can use it in either either way 
And really when it comes down to it, it's such a general purpose one that I think, you know, you need something to help kind of hold it as you're going to route a piece or mm-hmm. you need to, you know, stand a piece or whatever you're going to do. I, I think just simply having that one on there would, would definitely work perfectly fine. Um, other than that, the only thing I could think of is I know I still have uh, um, uh, jobs once in a while where like, just a, a simple machinist voice works out perfectly fine. You know, if I actually need to redo some hardware or I just simply need an extra pair of hands to help me hold something up on top of the workbench, oh, yeah. uh, this little tiny machinist style voice I have works perfectly fine. So that's, that's, that maybe that might be the, the two that I would really recommend to people. Definitely. Yeah, I would agree with power tools. You don't really need a whole variety. Uh, primarily what you need is something that does the uh, end vices job. And I think as long as you have a simple vice and a series of dog holes to, to utilize, I think that's going to cover the majority of your needs. Um, now, that being said, even power tool users love to dip their hands into hand tools. So it's not a bad idea to have, you know, some of those other clamps for increased functionality i mean someday you don't you don't necessarily know what you want to do uh five years down the line so if you're building a bench i don't think a traditional workbench with some of the more traditional features um will hold back a power tool user in any way it might just have some more features that the power tool user may not need right away but it's nice to know that you've got them there if and when you decide to make that switch yeah, that that's a great point. Yeah. And who knows? Somebody will come out with some sort of power tool thing that was like, we'll fit in the bench dog and do all this work for you. So go for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, for for hand tool woodworkers, I mean, really just your traditional, uh, at least minimally, uh, your traditional uh, front vice, um, uh, you know, the front face, any, any one of the variety that we discussed, and of course, an end vice together, and then some way to support those longer boards in conjunction with the, the front vice probably would be the best way to go, I would guess. Yeah, that that really is the main thing is if you are if you're a real hand tool enthusiast and you're gonna even if you're only using like a number four smoother something along the lines that a smaller hand plane even just a block plane you know you're kind of just beginning your your hand tool enthusiasm and you right. you just need something to support the, the wood right there on the face and yeah a nice little front vi- uh, vice and then at least you know some sort of clamping mechanism to hold it against the face you're all set sure. perfectly fine now one one bit of advice i would give people concerning um your workbench and your vices uh, they do have specific tasks and if you are just starting woodworking a lot of times people want to build that workbench right away uh my advice is to wait as long as you can and the reason is you at this point if you've just started and you're let's say you're within your first year you don't know nearly as much about your personal work habits as you will two years from now and three years from now. So you have to sort of strategize when the right time to make, you know, when the, when it's the right time to make those decisions. Because then, let's say you make the wrong decision, now you're going to have to live with it or build a new bench or modify the bench to uh, suit what you need it to do later. And I, you know, I'm a perfect example of that. I made a workbench well before I had any idea of what I needed from it. So if if you open up, let's say, I think Chris's book is another great example. If you open that book up and you're reading through and, and you see like light bulbs go off, you go, oh, if I had that, I would be able to do this, this, and this. That's when you know that that's the type of vice that you want on that bench or the type of workbench that you want to build. Um, if you're looking at it going, well, I guess I might need something like that or that looks cool, let me use that. You may it may be too soon to do it. You may still want to just try and get by using other uh, cheaper, less committed options. Um, right. You know, definitely. And I and I like I said, I made that mistake. 
Uh, my bench right now just has the Veritas uh, twin screw vise on it, and it works well. I mean, it, it does a pretty good job, but I am using more hand tools. I'm doing a lot more stuff where I wish I had a good uh, vise on the front of the bench and then some way to support the work pieces. So I need to completely remake my bench. I'm going to have to make a totally new one that suits the woodworker that I am right now. Right. That's a great point. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, because I really think for a lot of woodworkers in the very beginning, I know myself, you know, you always see the people talk about like a couple of sawhorses and basically like a, uh, a door and, and you're all set. Right. And, and one other thing, like you're saying, if when you're first getting started, you really don't know what kind of woodworking you're going to be doing. You, you don't really know all this stuff. And there are, when it comes to designing workbenches, people talk about this all the time, the ergonomics of it. If you're working with a lot of hand tools, you need to have that workbench a lot lower than if you're going to work primarily with power tools. Mm -hmm. And trust me, if you have a workbench that's designed for working with hand tools and you're working primarily with power tools, you're really going to feel it in your back because you're constantly kind of hunched over in all the wrong positions. And if you're a hand tool user, and this is kind of funny because when I went to that tool demo in Chicago about a month, month and a half ago or whatever, they had a Lee Nielsen workbench there. And this thing was probably about the right height for somebody who's easily like six five, six six, somewhere there. And here I am coming in like five five, five <laughs> six. So, luckily the this one guy that was with me, he was the same exact height. He might have been just like an inch shorter than me. And the two of us looked like we were like stepping up to our dad's workbenches <laughs> <laughs> trying to try out these you look like horrible. a little kid uh, a little kid going to the counter at McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah, we look like we were the elves in the shop working away. It was, like, it was horrible. <laughs> that so, is funny. That's awesome. So yeah, yeah, so those are some of the things you need to think about. And yeah, just don't jump into it feet first and just assume that, you know, everything's going to work fine. Get your feet wet a little bit and then go from there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got to give it some thought. And, and like I said, push it off as long as you can. I know it can be tempting, um, but if you have to ask those questions, do I need this? Do I need that? Then it might be a little bit too soon. And if and if you do build it, try and build a design that's adaptable and something that you might be able to change in the future. Right. I mean, because if if you do make a decision or if you do make a, a lot of a lot of people go into it thinking they're going to be a certain type of woodworker. And then they change completely midstream. They realize they don't like using power tools so much and they go to hand tools. And now your bench is not going to be very useful unless you've made it so that it's adaptable and can change. So, um, right. you know, it's a big it's a big commitment. It's kind of, uh, you know, one of those things. But, hey, you know, the bottom line is if, if, you know, if you're like most of us, you enjoy that process of building a bench. You may just want to build two of them for the hell of it <laughs> just because it's fun. It's Exactly. I'm going to have one at this end and I'm going to have one at that end. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I think we should probably cut it there. Um, we're having a, a little bit of, we're going to ho hopefully be able to hide all of that from everybody, but we're having some connection issues tonight. So uh, with yep. any luck, we'll be able to get through the, the last 30 seconds here with uh, <laughs> without any problems. So, and, and you should think the difficulties because I had a really bad joke and we're going to skip it. So you're all safe yep. from it. <laughs> You'll never hear it. Yep. We made out That's lucky. Right. <laughs> so you know, if you, if you guys have comments, questions suggestions there's two ways you can get a hold of us email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can leave us a message by picking up your phone and dialing 623-242-2450 and we'll get your message one way or the other and hey make your own voice on on the next show yes yes absolutely well thanks for listening everybody and we will catch you next time that's right take care everyone adios Hey, Mark and Matt. This is Daniel in California, and I was calling in response to your question on your uh, newsletter. 
which was if you had $2,500 to set up your shop, what would you buy? And I wanted to tell you guys what I did when I first got into woodworking. I was a weekend hobbyist and had a regular job, just like everybody else that's, you know, in this forum. But uh, I had an opportunity to go to work for myself and be on my own. And uh, I had a little bit of money in savings. I only had $1,500. But uh, when I had my first customer come to me and ask me to build three swings for him, I knew I had to get get going and get my shop set up in my basement. So with just a $1,500 budget, I basically bought the simple hobbyist level and I hate to admit it, but I actually bought rigid tools. But you know what? They worked really good. And I bought a table saw and a joiner and a chop saw and a band saw. All the stuff that I needed to make my swings. And uh, and a couple of good drills, you know, a good cordless drill and a good uh, 3-8 uh, power drill. But um, I guess the best money spent for the entire shop wasn't just the tools. It was $150 I put into making my work table, which I bought a solid core door, five two-by-fours, and some casters, and made myself a custom workbench that could fit my little six-foot-tall basement to build my swings in. And uh, I used that thing for many years, and when I wore out the top, I just unscrewed the door from the table and flipped it over, and I had a new fresh side to work with. But... uh Although I bought hobbyist level tools, I have to say I did not skimp on the saw blades and the router bits. I actually bought premium grade, and uh, I found that out with my first swing by using just crappy bits and saw blades that I ended up doing a lot of sanding. And I haven't yet met a woodworker that loves to do sanding. So cut back on that. I bought the premium stuff, and um, everything turned out great. I used those tools for years, and before I moved to California, just as a, a gesture of kindness to another friend that was wanting to get interested in woodworking, I gave them all my hobby-level rigid tools. But, but since then, I've upgraded my power tools, but I have to say, there's nothing wrong with starting with hobby-level tools, as long as you got the good blades. Enjoy your show, guys, and uh, keep up the good work. Talk to you soon. Hey, Wood Talkers. How you doing? This is um, Emrod from the big state, Colorado. And uh, I just uh, learned about something I wanted to give everyone a heads up on. The IRS. It's called a, a website that um, provides amazing auctions on uh, industrial equipment, lumber, and a lot of hardwoods. And um, I'm finding stuff on there every, every week. They've got a great one coming up in uh, May for a ton of hardwood in Pennsylvania. And so these things are scattered all over the country. And the website is irsauctions.com, irsauctions.com. And I've seen, uh, you can look at past auctions and see 18-inch bandsaws, huge industrial bandsaws going for uh, one-fourth of their value. And um, it's really um, some amazing stuff. I haven't actually um, bought anything from it yet. I just got wind of it a couple of weeks ago. But a uh, buddy word worker, a professional word worker of mine, has been using it for the last couple of years. And... Um, Definitely gives it the heads up. You can also find um, people that will ship uh, or pick up and create the items you might win on auction uh, and send it to you. So um, definitely IRS auctions, check it out. And uh, it's mostly online auctions. So that's it. Emrod is out. 
Hey, Mark, Matt, it's Richard. Um, I just uh, thought, frankly, for woodworking, uh, wood safety week, I thought you might uh, like to know that there was, I suffered a amputation of the finger about two years ago. And the thing that I just found out this week was I didn't get a good surgeon and I didn't have to lose my finger. So what I was going to say is sort of closing the barn door later on is how to tell if you have a good hand surgeon. They should reattach the blood vessels that night. Mine waited a week, and that was far too late. So what my new hand surgeon has told me is that if I go in there and someone says that they don't, that they can wait, run, don't walk. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.